Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. John Westover, welcome to the Almost Awakened podcast. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Good, good. Hey, you, you and I have known each other for years. You actually were a member of a board that I, uh, of a company that uh, essentially an entity that I created. And you were one of the first two board members to support that and to, to be kind of a help to me as I got that off the ground. And I consider you a friend. And I was on uh, the internet uh, about a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, maybe, and saw that uh, you had written a book, my friend, uh, Tell me first, let's just have you briefly introduce yourself to the audience, and then let's talk for a moment uh, about the impetus for that book. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so I'm, my name is John Westover. I'm an associate professor and department chair in organizational leadership at Utah Valley University. Uh, and that's my main gig. Uh, on the side, I do consulting work with my firm, Human Capital Innovations, and that's uh Consulting around people management, organizational leadership, types of topics and issues. And as part of that work, uh, I run my own podcast, the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Nice. And I, and I do a lot of, of writing um, for, for different outlets like Forbes and, and uh, some of the HR.com uh, magazines and things like that. So in addition to a lot of the academic uh, research that I do and publications and academic journals, um, especially in, in recent years, I've been putting a lot more effort towards more practitioner-oriented publications. And so that's really where the book started to come from. So back, I think it was just the week before Thanksgiving is when it was officially published. Uh, the book is titled The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. And it really came out of all of this, this work I've been doing with these various practitioner outlets as I've been trying to think about practical ways to put leadership into action in everyday life and in organizations, um, getting beyond kind of the ivory tower, you know, pie in the sky theory, which is good and important. And I'm a big believer in academic research, but I also realize that the vast majority of people never touch an academic journal. Um, and, and I wanted ideas to get to the end of the row, so to speak, you know, and, and have a chance to impact the lives of, of, of people all over. Um, and so that's the impetus for the book. Uh, it, I've been quite pleased. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. It's the first um, non-academic publication that I've put out. And uh, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. And it's been very well received. And, and so I've been really pleased. And it, it, I was pleased when I heard from you, Bill, and the receiving the invitation to join you on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. So you've got the, the word alchemy in there, which I think is interesting, right? There's this old ancient practice of trying to, essentially at the core is trying to turn certain base metals into valuable precious metals. And, and then there's other things that go along with it, which I think is almost, if I'm honest, almost a spiritual practice. And, and I also appreciated the subtitle of your book, which is The Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. On the Almost Awakened podcast, we're really trying to talk to kind of the, the common person, not necessarily the president of a company or, 
or somebody at the, the head of a board, but rather just everyday folks who are trying to wake up to the second half of life and try to figure out how to be better human beings. Maybe talk about those two things for a moment, the, the use of alchemy in the title and why, and also uh, what seems to be in this subtitle, this idea of, of reaching everybody and not just the people we perceive in our society as the leaders, but to help everybody be a better yeah, leader. Yeah, thanks. And I'll start with that second part first, actually, to piggyback on what you just said. I am a big believer that everybody has leadership capabilities and capacity. And we all have different leadership opportunities in everyday life, uh, whether that's at home, uh, in our neighborhoods, communities, in the workplace, in a religious or spiritual setting, uh, whatever the case may be. We all have the opportunity to exhibit leadership traits and characteristics and to develop our leadership potential. And I think part of the good life is learning how to leverage our leadership capabilities. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes in, in society, I think the way we frame leadership, um, people think about those formal types of leaders, right, who, who have titles. So you have a, an official position, you have an official title, you are a manager, you are an executive, you are a leader. Uh, and certainly those individuals, you know, we could say are leaders, but it's not restricted to them. Everybody has the opportunity to, to do leadership things each and every day. And in fact, I would argue that just because someone has an official position, an official title, that doesn't make them a leader. Uh, I think there's a big difference between administration and management versus leadership. And I see a lot of people in senior quote unquote leadership positions within organizations that aren't leaders really at all. They're they're administrators, they're managers, they're, you know, they're they're good at kind of doing the logistical things that maybe need to get done. But in terms of what what we really think of as the essence of leadership, they they don't do it. They aren't good at it. Um, on the flip side, we see people all of the time, say within the workplace, who don't have an official title. Uh, they don't, they're, you know, they may be towards the bottom rungs of the organizational hierarchy, uh, but they, they wield a lot of influence and power um, because of their reputation, because of how they work with people um, and, and people turn to them as an example, people turn to them uh, to, to get insight as to how to move forward to be successful. And for me, ultimately, that's what a leader does. A leader uh, identifies you know, has a vision, identifies how to move forward and helps others around them to recognize and realize their own potential to, to move towards that goal. And that doesn't require, you know, a CEO position or an executive type of position. We all have those opportunities each and every day. So that's the second part of your question. The first part, the alchemy piece. Um, I, I wrestled with, with the title of this book for quite a while. I had the book written, um, long before the title was ready. Um, and so I, I was throwing around a whole bunch of different options and I knew I wanted, I wanted it to connect to everybody. Um, certainly I want it to connect with people who have more formal types of positions within organizations um, because I think it'll be very valuable for them. Um, but I wanted it to connect with anyone, uh, you know, the, the housewife down the street, uh, the dad who's trying to figure out how to, to be more effective at home, uh, you know, the, the leader of the PTA, the whatever, right? Any, anyone and everyone, I wanted it to be able to resonate with them. And so I went through a lot of different iterations and ultimately I landed on the word alchemy because I liked the, I, I really liked the, the figurative meaning of the word um, that we're able to change 
something. And there's like this, this pseudo scientific component to it. There's kind of this magical spiritual component to it. Um, and ultimately it's, it's, it's about figuring out what the core of something is and then making it into something new and even better and more valuable. Uh, that's ultimately how I, how I interpret the word and, and, and why I felt like it was such a good fit with looking at how we develop leadership in our own lives. And then the subtitle, the second part of, of the book title, uh, again, I just want it to connect with everybody. Um, and so I do believe that ultimately leadership is about those ordinary everyday things that we do. And it's about consistently doing them. It's about sustainability and over time uh, having staying power in our approach to how we interact with ourselves, we interact with people around us. And we've all known leaders who can get up and give a big motivational speech. They can, you know, get people all riled up and, and ready, motivated and ready to go. And, and it, but then an hour later, you're, you're, you leave the meeting and you're walking back and you, you see this person in a different context and they don't hold up to the hype. They don't hold up to, uh, you know, the image that they were trying to portray of themselves. And I don't know about you, but I remember even starting as young as a teenager and certainly early in my career, I just remember so many encounters with people that I deeply admired, people that I considered to be tremendous leaders. And then being able, having just random opportunities to kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit and being so completely and utterly disappointed in them because they were hypocrites, because they, you know, they, they put on a show and a, and a public face, but behind the scenes, they weren't doing those very things that they were telling everyone else they needed to do. And that's not, that's something that's never sat well with me. And so it, the ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results is all about creating habits and patterns and consistently and sustainably over time, developing a connection with yourself, your true authentic self, and connecting with uh, and developing real meaningful relationships with those around you. Not pseudo-faux relationships, but real actual meaningful relationships where you genuinely care about those around you. Um, you genuinely want others to be successful. So uh, that's a long, very long-winded um, response to your two questions. Oh, I love it. I love it. Let's jump into the book. We're talking today with Jonathan Westover, author of The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. You know, you and I have had times over the last, say, 10 years where we've been somewhat parallel in our life journeys. And so I'm aware of some of the things that you've read. I'm aware of some of the kinds of things that you've wrestled with and thought about and thought deeply about. And I, and I know you. I know you're a smart guy. I know that you are well-spoken. I know that you take time to, to be informed on issues. I want to jump around a few of these parts of the book. You split the book into six parts. You've got 15 chapters. I want to kind of bounce around a little bit because there were certain part names or chapter names that really caught my eye. And the first one that does is chapter three, where you talk about helping others become bluer than indigo. And I don't know if a general population would understand where you're going there, but I do. And it's this idea of moving into deeper spaces of cognitive development and being um, kind of a different kind of person on the second half of life, which is exactly what the Almost Awakened audience is trying to get at. Talk for a moment about what it means to be bluer than indigo and what you're trying to do in the book to help the person, I guess, wake up to other ways in which to be human. Yeah. So a little bit of background. Um, I, I lived and worked in South Korea for uh, about two and a half years. 
um, in a couple different capacities. And, and so learning the Korean language and the culture um, very early on, uh, I really developed a deep love uh, for that. And it was the first time, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm an, an all American kind of guy, you know, uh, uh, grew up in Oregon, um, Ohio and Missouri. And, and so, you know, meat and potatoes kind of upbringing, um, Midwest, largely kind of an upbringing. And, you know, then I find myself in, in South Korea, right? And I'm, I'm learning this new language that's difficult. And I'm, and I'm learning all about this brand new culture um, that I've never experienced anything like before. I'm, I'm learning about new spiritual and religious traditions that I'd never experienced before. And one of the things that, uh, that I started to learn about very early on was about all these different proverbs and idioms that uh, really spoke to me and helped me learn the language and the culture, but also just in and of themselves were powerful. And one of those was this this proverb, bluer than indigo. Um, and within the leadership kind of context, uh, you're right in how you introduced it. Within the leadership perspective, um, what it really gets at is building on Confucius uh, ideals of helping the student become better than the master, right? So you think about the color indigo, and that's actually not a word that a lot of people use on a frequent basis in terms of colors, um, but it's it's a deep, vibrant blue. It's like the deepest of blues. So if you're saying that you want to help something become bluer than indigo, whether it's yourself to become bluer than indigo, or whether it's someone you're working with, uh, a child, a student, uh, an employee, whatever, then the, the idea is that you want them to become better, more capable um, than than you have been or than the deepest, most capable person, the deepest blue has ever been, right? So, you know, I, I've, I've studied a lot. I've, I've earned degrees. I've taught at a lot of different places. I do a lot of interesting work. I figure and consider myself to be a, a rather um, well-informed individual. Um, and so, it sounds pretentious and I don't mean to be pretentious, but, uh, but you know, perhaps I can consider myself as indigo. Okay. So let's just say for a moment that I, I say I'm indigo. Well, what does that mean then when I'm a leader with other people? If I, if my goal is to help others to become bluer than indigo, then that's to recognize, you know, the, the privilege that I have, the benefits and, and skills that I've developed over my life. And it's, it's then, you know, an attempt to impart that on others and help them surpass me. And that's something that's fundamentally different than I think how a lot of leaders approach leadership. So many leaders look at it as power and they look at it as opportunity. They, they try to, to pull in as much power and influence as they can and hoard it so that they can wield it and get other people kind of like their minions to do all of their bidding and to do everything that they want them to do. A bluer than indigo kind of an approach to leadership is completely flipped. Instead of me trying to hoard power, it's all about me trying to to recognize the true potential within each individual um, that I encounter, whether that's in my home, my community, in the workplace, recognize the true potential of each individual, help them to recognize that same potential, and then support them in reaching that and achieving it. And ultimately with the goal of having them surpass me, right? And ultimately with the goal of having them uh, take the lead, take over. Right. So it's not about me holding on to power. It's about me empowering other people. 
Um, and I think it's, it's one of the early chapters because uh, I think it provides a framing, an important fr- and essential framing for how we should be approaching uh, leadership in our everyday life. Yeah, I love that, right? If we're going to make the world a better place and if we're going to make our company that we work for a better place or we're going to make our neighborhood a better place, then we've got to equip and enable people to have the skills, the, the, the mindset, um, and whatever other tools are available to essentially surpass whatever was done before. Yeah. And so I love that. I love the idea of, of rather than the ego ruling us and worrying about how we can be seen as the top dog. Instead, we equip others, train others, help others, support others uh, in becoming their best selves so that whatever whatever facet of an organization or a culture or a society that we're involved in, we're helping it be better than it was yesterday. I love that. Yeah. And, and I think the irony here, and really the reality is that those leaders who hoard, who take the kind of the lordship approach to leadership and they hoard power and they try to get their minions to do their bidding, those, those leaders are just less successful um, because they, they position themselves as the expert. They position themselves as the, the one uh, person through which everything has to flow. And when you're in a particularly a complex organization, if that's how you've organized things, you're gonna, it's going to lead to bottlenecks. It, and, and simply, no matter how capable that leader is in that official position, they're not going to be able to handle everything. Uh, even the mo- the the person with the big the most bandwidth, the person who can juggle a thousand balls at once, they can't do everything themselves. So truly, the leader who's going to be most successful and drive the greatest organizational outcomes, uh, regardless of what type of organization we're talking about, it's the person who empowers their people, who helps develop their people, and and uh, puts trust into their people, um, so they the, collectively they can accomplish great things. The the true magic behind leadership is not what you accomplish; it's about how you empower those around you to accomplish great things. Love it. In uh, in chapter four, you talk about the power of listening, and I hear that kind of. Uh, advice or that kind of um, trying to equip people to be good listeners everywhere in our society. In fact, if if anything, in the last three, four, five years, that has been something that I've tried to be better at my personal life because I see that it's such a key component in everywhere. So I I don't mean to diminish you spending a chapter on it because it feels like every leadership book, every uh, place where a guru is talking, every place where some expert is speaking to the audience, they're talking about being good listeners. And I think we all start off in this world thinking we're a good listener. And I think very few of us actually are. We're all inside our heads trying to come up with how we're going to tell the next thing rather than really listening to the person who's talking and then responding to them uh, in ways that address the things that are on that person's mind or the, or the concerns that they brought or the uh, things that they are trying to accomplish and speak to, maybe speak for a moment about what your, what your angle is to helping people be better listeners, um, which I think at the end of the day just makes you a better human being. Yeah. And this one, you're right. It's not unique to leadership even. It's, it's, it's a fundamental principle 
uh, of just living the good life, being a good human, interacting with people around you. And I focus a lot on the role of listening in develop in being genuine and developing empathy uh, for others. And, you know, there's, there's lots of books that talk about the skill of leadership in terms of active listening and how do you convey that you're listening to the person so that they feel heard. Um, and those, those things are all important, right? There are certain skills, ways that I behave um, when I'm sitting in front of or next to a person, um, you know, to, to help them recognize and understand that I'm listening to them. And that's, that's good. That's important. Um, but, you know, regardless of, of those things, and I can nod and I can make eye contact and I can smile and I can rephrase and I can, I can do those, those sorts of things. But all of that is kind of surface level stuff, I think. Um, what it really comes down to is, are you truly genuinely connecting at the most basic human level with that person? That means you have no agenda when, when you're listening to them. Um, and that's something that most leaders uh, in organizations uh, can't say. And it, it's not, I, I'm not trying to say, you know, it's because they're horrible people or anything. It, in part, it's because of the world around them, how they've been socialized, how they've been trained in the past. And so most leaders, if I'm a manager, for example, and I'm, I'm, I'm having a feedback session with an employee or I'm doing a performance review um, or doing some coaching with one of my people, chances are I'm going into that conversation with an agenda and I'm going to try to put on this facade of compassionate listening so that they feel comfortable with me. But ultimately, I'm going to try to get them down the path of where I want them to go, right? And that's a fundamentally different thing than if I am simply wanting to connect at a human level with the individual sitting next to me. No agenda, simply listening, hearing, and supporting. Um, and again, it, it may seem counter, counterintuitive, but when you when you approach listening that way, it's so much more powerful and you will, it will, it will transition into the opportunity for you to, um, once you develop an authentic relationship with that person, then you can take that listening and trust that's developed, uh, and move towards development, move towards coaching, move towards mentoring. Um, but if you start with the agenda, uh, then, then it comes across as insincere and ultimately people can see that a mile away. And, and if you don't have a trust relationship first, uh, then people are going to tell you what they think you want to hear. Uh, and there's just no authenticity in that relationship and ultimately nothing changes. No, very true. As you're, as you were saying all of that, I'm sitting here thinking about how we all shield ourselves and are on guard against most of the people in our world because we don't perceive the other person as a safe space to really talk about whatever is really on our mind and talk about it in the way that it is in our mind. And, and as you're pointing out, when you don't have an agenda, when you make it, when you care about people around you and when you make it safe to just talk about whatever it is that is at the core of what's going on in that person's head, there becomes a comfort level. That person begins to develop trust with you, right? Which is what you're pointing to. And they begin to really sit down and have the conversations that really move uh, the conversation into more productive places. And so what I, the thing I was thinking about as you were talking is that you and I are having this really cool, calm conversation. There's not really a nervousness on your end. I don't feel a nervousness on my end because I know you, you know me, and we've spoken enough over the last 10 years to know that we're good people, that we care about each other on some level. 
and and that it's safe to just be calm and cool and collected and to to say whatever your brain is thinking about. And so I think you do a really good job of putting that into not just like a practice, but like the real work of of knowing others. I've seen you so many times, um, way better than me, f- to be honest, in getting at the core of like, look, I just want to sit down. Here's a human being. I want to give them a chance to talk. I want to try to understand their point of view. I, I don't want to have an agenda. I want to give this person a chance to respond to these questions I have or to address these issues that are on my mind. And I think you do a really good job. I don't think you're just writing a book and and putting some wise words into a chapter. I, I think these are principles that you truly live. And, and I can see that from a, a bit of a distance as I've watched you over the last decade. I uh, chapter uh, Part two, I want to ask one question, but then part three and part four, I made a bunch of notes uh, on things I wanted to ask about. So part two, uh, chapter five, you talk about a growth mindset. And and I think you hit on it in part already by saying, I want, I want the people that I have uh, responsibility over, that I oversee, I want those people to knock it out of the park. And I want to create a, a space where those folks feel encouraged to be the best version of themselves. And if that means they are overachieving me, then, you know, then, then have at it. Like, let's create that kind of atmosphere where everybody is welcomed to, to be their best uh, and most productive self. But what else do you mean when you say, let's create a growth mindset that is conducive to good leadership? Yeah, the, the the concept of growth mindset, I, I mean, it's not new. It's been around for a long time, um, but really popularized by Carol Dweck. Um, so if any of you who are listening, you, you know, as we talk about growth mindset, if you're really interested, go check out her book. I'm trying to remember what year. It's, it, it was over a decade ago that she came out with her book, The Growth Mindset. And the, the fundamental principle here is that we need to consistently be stretching, growing, and developing ourselves and that we all have the capacity to do so. Uh, That's a simple concept, but so many times in our lives, we get kind of stuck into this negative, um, these negative thinking patterns in our brain, right? And we start to think that these limited thoughts um, restrict our ability to progress. Uh, And those take a lot of different forms in our lives. Uh, And I, I mentioned it towards the beginning of the episode. Like I recognize I have a lot of privilege. I'm a middle-aged cisgender straight white dude. Um, and you know, I, I didn't come from an, a wealthy family by any means. Um, but I came from a well-educated family. So I never questioned whether or not I would pursue education, for example, and that's led to a lot of other opportunities. And so I, I have a lot of privilege. Um, but a lot of people, um, don't have those same types of privileges that I was born with, frankly. Um, And so then the question becomes, what do we do with the environment in which we're in? Uh, If if I am someone uh, who is from a marginalized uh, population uh, where the deck is stacked against me, how do I make good in my life, right? And the idea behind growth mindset is not that we ignore the privilege or the lack of privilege, not that we, um, you know, we, we don't have to pretend like things are good when they're not, but we just acknowledge reality for what it is. And then we free ourselves of the limiting thoughts and recognize that pers- persistence over time can lead to great things. Um, as a professor, I see this all the time. I teach at a university um, that uh, we have a huge range of students uh, in terms of kind of raw capability. Um, we have lots of non-traditional students that come back years later, you know, not during the normal kind of 18 to 20 to 23 year range. Uh, we have lots of first generation college students. Um, and I, I have students 
that could probably go to any university in the country um, that are that capable. And I have students that uh, never finished high school and they're coming into the university setting very underprepared and everything in between, right? And as a professor, my hope is that I can take those very best students, right? I can take the very best students and I can add something to what they already have and help them to become a little bit more capable and then launch them into their careers and hopefully they have success. But honestly, where the, where, um, the real energy in my work comes from is helping those students that may come from uh, backgrounds where they didn't have a lot going for them. They didn't have a lot of shots, right? And helping them leverage this university experience to learn about themselves, to develop themselves and to grow. And it's amazing to be able to see, you know, when they come in, you know, that, that student who maybe barely got through high school or didn't even graduate coming into the university setting, starting to build the, their foundation and then develop and grow into this tremendous human being just as capable, every bit as capable as some of those who were, you know, may, may have started way de- further down the path. But over time, you know, the, the cliche tortoise and the hare kind of uh, metaphor, they, they catch up. And, and when you just are persistent and consistent in your effort each and every day, and you don't allow yourself to succumb to those limiting thoughts, uh, you really truly can accomplish great things. I, I believe that. And I, I, I hate classism. I hate, um, I hate elitism. Uh, those, if you want to get me riled up and get me kind of ranting about things, to start talking about those topics and I'll, I'll get going on them because all of those are a fixed mindset kind of an approach to life. Meaning you're born with something, that's the way you are, it's not going to change, and you just deal with the deck that was handed to you, and there's not much you can do about it. Growth mindset's the opposite. We all have potential, we all have opportunity, and from a leadership perspective, I think that's 100% true. Yeah, which leads into the next thing I want to talk about, which is this uh, part three, inclusive leadership. As I have, and and not to not to go off too far into the weeds here, but as I have thought about um, the people around me and all the things that have gone on in the last year, 2020 was a turbulent year for all of us. And it was interesting to see our company actually did really well. We actually had one of the best years we've ever had in 2020 uh, because I I manage a pawn shop as my full-time job. And because of the financial ups and downs, because of people being out of work, people, and because of the scare, you know, things like precious metals and guns were selling like crazy. Things like people were doing loans uh, in in a different way than they used to because now people are out of jobs in a in a serious you know crisis moment. And as I've was trying to learn and be a better human being myself in 2020, one of the topics that I dealt with uh, inside my own head was racism uh, and prejudice. And I wrestled with and read several books on um, the idea of why do we have things like affirmative action and the concept of, do you, is it better in this world if we just hire the most proficient person at that moment, or is it better if we take people who have been held back and marginalized over the course of, you know, a hundred or 200 years and try to create an environment where a hundred years from now, we now have more balance and equality. And we bring those who have been held down, bring them up to be able to uh, succeed and grow right alongside those who were privileged, as you point out yourself being, and I am, you know, in that same boat. And it has been interesting to go into my head and know all those old arguments of why things like affirmative action were bad. 
And then to realize, as you talked about already with the growth mindset and the bluer than indigo, that we need to create environments where we lift society up and bring uh, about change so that in the future, we can be more capable of achieving and producing on a whole collective rather than the select few privileged uh, segment of society always having the opportunity. And so part three, you titled Inclusive Leadership. Chapter seven, you talk about the frog in the well. I want to know what you mean by that. I, I think I know that story. I think I understand what where you're going. And then I want to talk to you a moment about chapter eight and chapter nine, which I, I thought just the titles of the chapters alone are things that we could probably spend two or three hours talking about. We won't do that. But um, talk a bit about inclusivity and why you think that's so important. And then tell us about the frog in the well. Yeah, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, definitely gets a lot of play these days in organizations. Um, they're kind of buzzwords. And so I hesitate. It's kind of like um, earlier when you talked about listening. Like everyone talks about listening, right? It's important. That's true. So in one sense, I, I include a chapter on listening because I don't know how you talk about leadership and effective leadership without talking about effective listening. Um I, again, with diversity, equity, and inclusion, they're buzzwords in organizations. And so I don't want people to think that I included it just because they're trendy buzzwords. Like I, they're, It's extremely important to foster an environment where everyone feels welcome, genuinely, sincerely welcome, valued, um, and that they are utilized the same as everyone else. Uh, and and so inclusion is simply about creating that environment. It's about creating an environment where it doesn't matter um, what your race, gender, ethnicity is, sexual orientation. It doesn't matter what school you went to. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, your socioeconomic background. None of that matters. What matters is that you're there, you're motivated, um, and you want to grow and develop yourself and help the organization, your team succeed. That's what matters. Um, now that, you know, obviously depending on the job there, you, you have to have some sort of fundamental level of, of skill <clears throat> in order for you to, to find success. But most of us, learn on the job. Most of us learn and grow and develop in the way the world is going. You know, there's new technologies introduced every day. Um, and so the idea that we're going to hire only the most, the very most capable person right out of the gate, um, that, that it, it just means that we're going to perpetuate these, um, these inequities and imbalances in society. Um, and that's not to say that you can't hire a, a white guy um, for a job who is very capable. I'm not saying that, but it does mean we need to give special consideration um, to others who may on paper not look quite as qualified, but if you take the time to really understand who they are as a person and to understand where they've come from to get to where they're at today, you know, for a marginalized, for, for, for a person from a marginalized population, the growth that they may have achieved over, you know, the previous five years may be exponentially more and greater than that person who came from a privileged background, right? And so when you think about it that way, who would you rather have? The person who's more or less um, kind of complacent about where they are or the person who recognizes where they were, where they are now and where they can go. And, and they are energized and excited to, to leverage their capacity for the organization. Who would you rather have in that environment? I know who I would rather have. I would rather have that person who believes in themselves uh, and who doesn't feel entitled, who is who is gritty, who has resilience, who is willing to put in the work uh, and and is willing to continually learn and grow. 
That's the, the individual I want. And if, if we want organizations like that, then we have to create inclusive environments where everyone has not only an equal opportunity under the law, you know, in Title IX, uh, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. Um, we know that these are protected classes, but it's it's about um, it, it's about making sure that throughout all of the policies, practices, and procedures, all the processes within the organization, from the time we start recruiting for applicants, through the screening process, the hiring process, the onboarding process, the training and development, the uh, career mapping, uh, leadership development, everything, like all of that has to be built upon a foundation of inclusion so that everyone has equal opportunity truly and everyone would want to work for that organization. Um, I think you and I both have been a part of organizations in the past that have been woefully lacking in um, that inclusive element. And it's not enough to just use the words. You can say everyone's welcome, but if, if people are discriminated against, if they're in some way discounted, um, then saying they're welcome or having a nice banner up on the wall, um, espousing, you know, the value of diversity or whatever, it doesn't mean anything if it's not actually fundamentally built into the way the organization runs. Right, right. And tell us about the frog in the well. So frog in a well, that's another, um, that's another Korean parable that I learned very early on in my time there. And some of the listeners may be familiar with Plato's allegory of the cave, um, where this person is in the cave and they see the shadows on, on the wall, the cave, and that's their reality. That's their perception. Right. But over time, you know, they start, they, they realize that perhaps there's something outside of the cave and they start to look out and then they realize there's this whole big world. Um, the frog in the well is essentially the same meaning, um, but it's from the Eastern perspective. And so again, built upon Confucius and Buddhist principles, the idea is that you know if you're born at the bottom of this well, if you're a frog and you're born down there and uh, that's your whole world, that's your whole reality is the bottom of this well. It's cold, it's wet, it's dark, you're trapped, um, but you don't really even know you're trapped because that's the, the entire the entirety of your existence. The You look up, you see the sky above you, all you can see is that little narrow pillar of sky directly above you because that's all you've ever been able to see. But um, imagine you're able to get out of the well. You peek your little head out of the top of that well, and for the first time you start to see uh, the vastness of the world. You start to see the the sky, uh, all of the the varieties uh, in in vegetation, animal life, uh, landscapes. Right, everything is 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 more expansive than you ever could have possibly known when you were stuck at the bottom of the well. The reality is, we're all like that. We're all um, born within a particular context uh, where you know within a family where certain values and principles are espoused, um, and we have a certain worldview. Over time, as we grow up, as we mature, and we get kind of, we get past the black and white way of thinking of of our childhood, and we have more interactions and encounters with people who are different than us, over time, we start to kind of rise up that well. And eventually, we get to a point, well, well, at least some people get to the point, where they're able to kind of peek their head out of the top of that well. The question is, what do you do with that once you get to that point? Uh, And I, this is overly simplistic for sure, but the way I think of it is there's really just a few main options that people tend to do. Um, they get up to the top of that well, and for as dark and cold and wet and restricted as the well was, as soon as they get to the top, they look around and they start to see predators out there. There's other animals that want to eat them. Um, they they look around and, it, and it, the vastness is scary to them. And so they simply retreat back down into their well. 
Um, because while it's restricted, it's also safe, right? And it's what they know. Um, I think there's a lot of people that do that and they live their whole life within that same, very same well that they existed from their young childhood. Um, others uh, look around and they also start to notice that it's not, their well is not the only well. There's actually wells dotting the landscape. There's wells all over the place. <clears throat> and in fact, there are frogs peeking their heads out of all these other wells also. Um, and, and they're like, well, that's interesting. And, and realizing that, hey, maybe the way my existence was growing up was, was unique to me. And then all these other people have their own existences and their own worldviews and perspectives. And, and so you decide to leave your well and go explore. And you start to hop into other wells and you start to see what, what those are all made of. Um, but a lot of these individuals, they've, they essentially end up trading, you know, I, I would frame as trading ideology for ideology. So you grew up within one well, one ideology, one worldview, one perspective, and you end up just trading it and you go and you find another well and you're like, oh, this is really cool. This is different than the way I was, I was raised. Um, I'm going to now seek safety and comfort within this new ideology, this new well. I, I think a lot of people do that and they're really stuck in that kind of way of thinking. Uh, and then I think there's a third way that's probably a much smaller proportion of the human population, but they get out of the well and they realize, well, this is, this is great. This is interesting. They'll go explore other wells perhaps, but they'll also explore everywhere. They'll, they'll explore all over the landscape and they, they'll recognize, you know, there's value in their upbringing. There's value in their worldview value in their experience. Um, but there's, equal value in everyone else's experience. There's equal value in everyone else's lived experience. And, and then they just live that complex, messy life where they're not always safe. Perhaps they're being hunted by other animals, um, but ultimately they, they aren't living in that kind of restricted um, zone. And I think that is essential to, again, living a good life. I think it's essential to um, good leadership uh, and essential to inclusivity. We, it's, it's, it's darn near impossible for us to truly see and value uh, others around us if we are stuck in our own ideology. If we think our way is the way, our way is the right way, and everyone else who does it differently is wrong, they're evil, they're lazy, whatever, you can add any negative descriptor there. Um, that's how so many people live in this world. And when you are in that headspace, um, you, you might use all of the buzzwords and you might say you value everyone and you love everyone and everyone's welcome. But when that's your headspace, uh, you're, you're simply not capable of truly um, showing that care and support and, and value to, to all those around you. Um, so I, I teach this to my students. Um, my hope and goal is for every single person um, to recognize the importance of lifelong learning, lifelong development, stretch your mind, challenge your thinking, challenge your assumptions, learn and interact with um, people who are completely different than you. And that doesn't mean you need to completely jettison all of your own personal values from your upbringing, but it does mean you need to reframe and reshape them to, to allow you to, to recognize the value of other people's perspective. So that's, that's frog in a well. I think it, it's fundamental to helping us understand how to lead effectively, because until we get out of our own, our own worldview, we can't truly authentically and genuinely connect with those around us. Yeah, beautiful. Chapter eight, uh, you talk about inclusivity there too, but you have these other two terms, belonging and diversity. Belonging, we have 
talked about a ton on this podcast and various episodes, the idea that on the first half of life, we all want to be accepted. And so we compromise ourselves by trying to fit in. And belonging is something different. Belonging is you show up as you are um, and, and you are accepted as the human being that you are. You're accepted for the cultural experience that you've had. It doesn't mean that your bad behaviors are just simply tolerated. We all get to encourage each other. And if something is unhealthy enough, then there, there needs to be room for the way life disciplines us, right? To, to correct those things. But we all ought to be encouraged to stop fitting in, at least to some degree, and be encouraged to show up uh, with our unique thoughts, our unique uh, way of being human, so long as that is contributing uh, in a healthy way. And when it's not, there should be healthy ways from other people to to correct that or to bring it up and talk about it. And and so we've talked about belonging a bunch, but you, the middle one you've got there is diversity. And I think you're you're really hitting the nail on the head with the frog in the well, which is that all of us have blind spots. And often we are trying to associate with like-minded, like similar life experience people. And because that makes us comfortable. And so if, you know, you're a, you're a privileged European white male, I'm, I'm a privileged European white male where we're both uh, again, cisgender and all that stuff. Right. So this idea that if we want to be comfortable, we go out and we just find a bunch of other white guys and we get into a room and we start making, you know, decisions. And what we don't realize is, and what organizations that, uh, set themselves up this way with with similar kinds of people in the room is that you don't realize the blind spots that you have. You don't realize where you're missing the mark. You don't realize the hurt or pain or the stagnation that you're causing because you don't have these other views in the room. And and again, as you pointed out, we both have seen organizations that that do that. I, I, th- I think, and I want to ask you in terms of diversity, there's a ton of value when you just let go of trying to be comfortable and you start to bring in people that are very different than you, different gender, different races, different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds, different um, poverty levels, different um, different skill sets, different kinds of education. Yep. Maybe talk for a moment, uh, this chapter eight, how important diversity is in being able to see the full scope of what is out there. In other words, to be the frog that gets out of the well and doesn't just go check out other people's experiences because those guys have blind spots too, but to explore that whole landscape and the benefit that comes in when you begin to open yourself up to getting uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the key is opening yourself up. (laughs) Um, You know, because when you think about evolutionary psychology, we are, we are, have evolved to want to be with other people that are like us, right? Uh, we want safety and security and we like certainty. Uh, there's a great book called The Sin of Certainty uh, that I'm a, I'm a big believer in. Uh, I think as soon as we start to latch ourselves to this, this what I think is a fairly naive um, certainly overly simplistic notion that we can be certain about much of anything, um, then we restrict our ability to leverage um, the the messiness, the complexity of life. Um, and the world is messy. The world is complex. And there's so much nuance uh, that's out there in how we understand ourselves and our connection with the world. And so we just need to be open. If we, if we can, that's like, honestly, if you can just get yourself to be open um, like truly 
open to the difference around you, uh, I think that's like three quarters of the battle <laughs> in life. Um, now, assuming you get to that point, then yeah, you, you start to, to surround yourself with others who just come from all different types of backgrounds. And that is going to lead to better processes, better decision-making, um, better outcomes across the board. There's so much research on this. Uh, it's, it's irrefutable uh, as far as I'm concerned. I, you know, every now and then someone will push up against the idea of the value of diversity, uh, I think more or less because they just want, you know, a minute of fame, you know, because they're being provocative. But there's just so much research that shows how incredibly important um, diversity in the workplaces, for example, um, diversity on boards of directors, uh, and so forth. And it's not just about the business case. Uh, you know, we, we can talk about the business case for diversity. We can say, if, if you do these things, you get a diverse team, um, you have more gender equity and balance in your team. You have uh, more racial, ethnic diversity. You have more cognitive diversity, um, different worldviews and ways of thinking. Um, all of that's great. That, that will fundamentally help the organization have better outcomes, be more profitable. It's, it's pretty much indisputable. Um, but there's also the human case. So regardless of whether or not it helps the organization do better, there's the human argument of like, what does it mean for us to, to be good to those around us? And what does that ethically, what does that require of us? Uh, and I believe that the human case requires us, it's our moral obligation to uh, reach out and connect with others who are not like us. Um, and it goes, you know, the way I think about it, it's always dangerous when you, you get overly simplistic and you start to think in terms of taxonomies and, and, and uh, kind of levels and steps. But I think of diversity more or less as the first step within an organization where you get a diverse people into the organization. Um, so you have all of these different perspectives. And from there, you build an inclusive environment where not only do you have the people there, they've shown up, but now there, there's a culture of inclusivity where actually everyone truly feels safe to, to participate and to be involved and be their authentic self. Um, and then it, it ends up with belonging. And I think there's actually not a lot of organizations to, that get to that point, but it's, it's, it's a step further from that inclusivity culture where the, the natural byproduct of that is, if you really truly create that, is now everyone feels um, that sense of belonging with the organization and they don't have to pretend, they don't have to put on a face, they can just truly show up their true authentic self and not have to worry about any of that nonsense and garbage that so many of us have to spend so much of our daily lives thinking about and self-monitoring about because we know that how, what we do, what we say, how we act is going to influence how other people perceive us and that can influence our effectiveness. The, the belonging organization is the organization that, that uh, surpasses that and gets past it. And then you can spend all of your time and energy just focusing on what matters. Um, so that's how I think about it. Love it. Love it. We are, we're getting kind of towards the end here. I want to ask you one more question and then maybe a wrap up question and give you a chance for any closing comments. Uh, again, we're talking today with Jonathan Westover, author of The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Uh, John, uh, in this part four, uh, you talk in chapter 10 about toxic leadership. And then in chapter 12, you talk about institutional and interpersonal trust. 
And I think you and I both know what toxic leadership looks like. We've both, again, been part of organizations that even in spite of, to some degree, appearing successful, uh, do it in really unhealthy ways. How you motivate somebody to be productive that causes them pain and trauma. Um, how you get people to do the things that need to get done, but you're, you're harming people at a human level as you do it. Uh, and then chapter 12, this idea that what is integrity? What is trust? How, do, how does an organization develop and, and not portray like in a fake way, but portray because it's, it's inherent in who they are, uh, that the organization is trustworthy and it's made up of trustworthy people? Uh, maybe juxtapose those for a moment. What What is a toxic organization or a toxic person in terms of leadership? And and what does it mean for an organization or a leader uh, to be trustworthy? And let's let's kind of have that be the last big question that we talk about today. Yeah, thank you. Toxic leadership. Like you said, we've all been there. Uh, we've, we've been um, with managers or bosses that uh, exploit um, who, who use their power in unhealthy ways. So at the most basic level, that's basically what it means is uh, that jerk boss um, who, who just simply uses their people, um, not even for the success of the team, but the, for their own personal uh, success, right? Um, and so they just walk on people. That's toxic leadership. And usually with toxic leadership, it also has the component of sycophant syndrome. So you see, we, we see this in politics all the time. You have a leader and you can look at those who are more authoritarian types of leaders, more toxic types of leaders, and they're usually surrounded by a bunch of sycophants, a bunch of people who are yes men who simply um, tell them what they want to hear and stroke their ego and try to just appease them in the hopes that that will in some way benefit them, you know, in the future, right? And that they can ride the coattails and, and the power of that individual. Um, so the, the two go hand in hand. And it's, it's incredibly unhealthy for an organization to have that kind of a dynamic. And so we need to really battle that. Um, and if, if I am a leader, say a CEO or executive level leader, and I see examples in lower, you know, leadership levels below me, I have, I have a responsibility and an opportunity because of my position of power to make the necessary corrections because the amount of sickness that that's going to cause in terms of organizational culture is tremendous. And, and it leads to the, the organization can't be sustainable in the long term when there's toxic leadership um, pervasive within the organization. Um, I could go on and on about it, but that's uh, essentially that's, that's the principle. And it, and it builds upon this body of research that it's actually kind of fun. Um, there's, there's this metric that was developed maybe a decade ago called the total cost of assholes, um, where a researcher looked into what is the expense to an organization for that one asshole boss, that one just really toxic jerk boss um, and what does that cost the organization? And it, there's all sorts of things that feed into it. Uh, turnover costs because good people leave. They don't want to work for a jerk boss. Um, loss in productivity, loss in innovation, uh, all those sorts of things lead into it. So, so that's toxic leadership. Um, now, trust. You're, you're absolutely right. It's like flip sides of the coin. If you have toxic leadership culture in your organization, there is no trust. There is no institutional or, or interpersonal trust within, the, within that organization. People will comply with a toxic leader out of fear, um, but people will not show long-term sustainable commitment 
to that leader or that organization uh, because fear is a short-term motivator. It's not a long-term motivator. Uh, so if I want to foster an environment where people truly are engaged and happy with their workplace and their boss and they interact together in a safe way um, and produce great results where they're creative and innovative on an ongoing basis, that doesn't happen with toxic leadership. In fact, toxic leadership completely undermines that. What it does happen with is when you create an environment of, of trust through the policies, practices, and procedures that um, happen within that organization, and they have to all align so that you're not just walking, you're not just talking the talk, but walking the walk, right? And ultimately, um, as people perceive that, and they see you as a leader who genuinely cares, who genuinely wants to connect with them authentic, in an authentic way, uh, and you do it consistently over time, and all of your practices, policies, procedures, all of the systems are uh, created and and uh, and sustained in such a way that it, it can lead to ongoing um, trust formation. That's that's what leads to then greater levels of creativity, productivity, uh, innovation, all those really great wins for organization. The same thing, but it, it's interpersonal too. I mean, the same thing happens in our households. The same thing happens in our communities. And so uh, this this development of trust is just so foundational. Love it, love it. So let's, uh, with a, a couple of minutes here, just to kind of wrap up, um, First off, there are lots of chapters we didn't even spend a moment talking about. Uh, I would encourage everybody to go out and take a look at The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Um, John, the world would be such a better place if we all took seriously being better leaders. Um, Because I think we generally do think of ourselves as like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the low man in the totem pole here, or I'm just the middle guy, or, and those are the guys that lead. Uh, maybe kind of wrapping us up, help us understand the importance of everybody taking on the, the idea that we all ought to be leaders and we all ought to develop leadership skills and what that means for a society at large, or if we, if we narrow it down to something smaller, what it means to be a leader, even if you're not at the top of an organization. Yeah, I think everyone can be a leader and everyone can be a change agent. Uh, They can drive positive um, shifts within our communities, within our organizations, within society. And you don't need a formal title, a formal position of power to be able to do that. There's all sorts, there's different forms of power and influence and anyone uh, can develop those and be able to lead change. Um, where they see it necessary. And I think, man, I just think about so many just really challenging, perplexing issues in society right now. So uh, within organizations, we've all been there. You, 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 I can't help but go into an organization and observe and see dysfunction, see unhealthy behaviors. Um, and, and I want to fix those. I want to be able to make those better because that will improve the lives of everyone within that organization. And that will improve um, the products or services that they provide to the community and enhance the lives of their customers. So it's a win-win, right? And I just can't help but do that. That's just how I'm built. Um, but it's not just within our organizations, it's within society. So, you know, we, if you want to live a life of impact where you make a difference in the world, 
um, you need to become a leader and you need to become a change agent that if you, maybe that's climate change, you want to be able to influence that maybe, uh, or some other environmental type of an issue. Uh, perhaps it's systemic racism that you want to try to tackle. Um, perhaps it's, you know, gender inequity, um, n- you name it, any, any of these types of really challenging issues, they need good people at the grassroots level, um, throughout all of our communities to be able to make the difference. And we each have that potential. We each have that capacity. We just need to, to hone those skills a little bit and make habits out of them. Um, one of the, the features that I just wanted to briefly mention about the book uh, is that, uh, and, and I think this is a bit unique in terms of the leadership space for these types of books. There's, there's, there's lots of leadership books. Uh, you go onto to Amazon and you search leadership in the, in the book section. And there are, I mean, there are thousands of leadership books. Um, one of the things I think makes this one a bit unique is one, the fact that it's really aimed and focused at the fact that everyone can be a leader. Um, and two, each chapter, at the end of each chapter, there's built in um, a handful of self-reflection questions, uh, space to reflect and journal, as well as a place to set goals. Um, and I think if you approach these topics, not just from an intellectual standpoint of like, I, I just want to understand better what you mean by X, Y, Z, right? And you can read the book and you can learn about that. And that's great. Um, but like really thinking about how do you apply this to your life? How do you put it into practice? How do you develop these different traits and attributes as habits um, and really embed them into who you are and how you live your life. That's what's going to generate true leadership and true and create uh, change. Uh, and I think each of us has that potential. I think we need to stretch for it. The world needs us uh, to, to rise to that challenge. Yeah, beautiful. I just saw this morning uh, that you had contributed to an article in Forbes magazine. Um, am I saying that right? Is it was it the magazine itself? Expert uh-huh. panel article. Yeah, mm-hmm. twelve agenda items to. Oh, sorry. Yeah, twelve agenda items to tackle that will ensure a smooth business pivot. Um, I just. I want to end just by saying again, it was easy to reach out to you because I know you and, and we've got a relationship, but I just think you're doing big things. And and it's fun to sit back and watch people I know who are making a difference in the world, John. And you're one of those folks. I, I just think you are creating uh, a better world. And I just want to say thank you for all the work that you do. Uh, folks, check out the book. Where can folks find the book? I know it's on Amazon. Where else can, uh, can people uh, get that? Yeah, you can find it uh, any major um, book retailer. Uh, Amazon's probably the easiest place. Um, Kindle and paperback um, audio version is also available. So so check it out. If you're on uh, Amazon, uh, it is available for free through Kindle Unlimited. Um, so if you're part of that, the Amazon Prime Kindle Unlimited subscription, uh, you can gain access to it without having to purchase. Um, or you, you know, I, I would certainly appreciate the support. Uh, but my main goal in writing the book um, was really to just get some ideas out there and uh, to share with people. And I hope it can make a difference. I hope that people, um, that it will continue to resonate with people and that uh, individuals will find the value in their life and and perhaps make their life just a little bit better and allow them to to influence those around them. Yeah. As you point out, there are millions of leadership books. Uh, Some of them I think are uh, somebody is just talking the talk, 
And I, I think that uh, certainly there are some out there that are really good and, and teaching great things. But having watched you, you walk the walk as well. And so for folks uh, who really want to understand real applicable uh, leadership concepts and ideas, and I think you did it in a way that's very different than what others have tackled. Um, I just want to say again, for folks, uh, check out the book, um, John, uh, Jonathan Westover, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Thank you, John. Um, I just, I think the world of you and uh, look forward to kind of watching you from afar and, and seeing you continue to do big things. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate the invitation to join you today. Thanks for the discussion. And I feel the same way yeah. about you. Uh, I consider you a friend and and uh, I, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to see the good work that you're doing also. Perfect. Love it. Love it, my friend. Have a great day and uh, listeners, uh, check out the book and uh, we'll just see you next time. Uh, Bye-bye, everybody. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.